This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and forward six. Look around to the right when you're balanced. Look around to your right and you're balanced. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common. A spark. A desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers, or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Hello from the mic, friends. I'm glad you're joining me to spend the next hour and a half listening to the soothing voice and genial humor of Steve Zakon Anderson. In 1980, Steve walked into his first contradance not knowing how it would change his life. He started calling three years after that, and has now danced, called, taught, and organized contradances for over 40 years. In that time, he's traveled to dance events in 43 states and a number of other countries. Steve is appreciated by dancers for his skill at programming, his clear and efficient teaching, and his sense of humor. He's also appreciated by dance bands for his considerate weaving of his calling with their music. Steve began dancing and calling in New Hampshire, and has been influenced by and influential to the New England dancing tradition. He's written over 30 contemporary contra dances, many of which are used by callers around the country. In our conversation, he shares stories about the people and places that have shaped him as a caller and a person, as well as some pretty deep thoughts about what this calling thing is all about. Here's Steve. Steve Zakon Anderson, hello. Hi, Mary. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you here on From the Mic. I'm so glad to be here. Where are you? Uh, where are you calling in from today? Um, so I, I'm in Hancock, New Hampshire, where we moved back to two years ago after being in. We left New Hampshire in 19, no, 2004, and just came back. Wow, a, a and, homecoming of sorts. Yeah, no, back to the house we left, actually. And uh, 
I worked this morning and then I went out and fed the black flies and uh, picked a few ticks off and now I'm hopefully ready. Wow. Way to, way to do your part for, for yeah. nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so nice to see, see you and I'm excited to sit down and talk a little bit about calling. You know, we obviously have seen each other at, at dance events. You have attempted to email me to book things and and <laughs> had to resort to um, unusual measures to get a hold of me, which I, I say with chagrin and, and also deep appreciation. Um, the, the email, the battle of the inbox is real. But um, anyway, you know, uh, when I sat down to get ready for this interview, I was like, you know, Steve is, for me, has... Uh, is someone I've danced to and, and you know, participated in events that you've organized in Peterborough, the snowballs and play balls and, mm -hmm. and things. We've seen each other at the Ralph Page Dance Legacy Weekend. But I don't know that I've ever really had the, the caller talk with you and kind of gotten the, gotten the story. So I'm excited. Um, and yeah, I wonder if you want to just start out by giving us a little bit of your caller biography. How did you start dancing? And then how did you start calling? Great. Glad to. Um, as you know, callers love to talk. So, <laughs> um, well, I have to take us back to right out of college, uh, working for Nature's Classroom which uh, some folks know what that is, uh, especially if you've had kids in elementary school. Um, and at this program, we had a night we called Hoedown, uh, which I knew would make you laugh. <laughs> and we did uh, a couple people strummed guitars, uh, and we did the Virginia Reel, and we did Duck for the Oysters, and Heel and Toe Polka, I believe. Um, so I had no idea what this was. And I, I wouldn't say we had a caller per se. It's any staff member could just, you know, teach it. Um, and uh, fast forward a year later, I was teaching elementary school in, in rural New Hampshire. And I made a comment to a friend from Nature's Classroom that I wasn't really meeting people. I, I spent my day with third graders and I spent my evenings thinking about third graders, not in a bad way. Um, and, uh, and I was like, I'm not meeting anyone. And she said, go to a contra dance. It's like hoedown. So I walked into a dance in Francistown, New Hampshire, and that was the beginning. Uh, Mary DeRosier, a fellow caller, remembers my first dance, remembers saying to her friend Jennifer, he's kind of cute, too bad he can't dance. <laughs> so that was the beginning, but boy, like so many other stories uh, of people who started Contra, it just took off. Then I was going to Dublin, and then I was going to Peterborough, and then I was going to Nelson, and then I was getting in cars and going to Greenfield, well, then it was Northfield, and Boston, and so that's how the dancing started and took off. Um, three years later, I was in Nelson, and uh, the two people who were calling somewhat regularly, said, we really need more people to call. 
you know, no one, no one's hired, and we're volunteers, and we can't always make it. Would anyone like to to do some calling? And so I thought about it. Uh, a, a little addition in there is that I had seen the people on stage and thought they're having a really good time, like. Ooh, I would like to do something like that. So my first attempt was taking fiddle lessons, <laughs> which wasn't going very well, let's just say. Um, I was taking lessons, and the school where I was teaching, there was someone who came to give violin lessons. So she had me trying it. And uh, as my roommate used to say when I practiced it, it was the sound of someone ironing a cat. <laughs> oh, that's so... <laughs> so Ultimately, I'll I'll mention that I eventually switched to the mandolin and actually had chops there for a while where I was playing on stage at Nelson with the mandolin. But um, this idea of calling intrigued me. I wasn't really sure where to go with it, but I thought, you know, I, I could do that. Um, I spent a summer at Farm and Wilderness Camp. I was in the string band with my mandolin, actually, the, the old F&W string band that many of your listeners will know. And on the last night, uh, do, you, do you remember Dan O'Connell, the caller? I don't he, think so. I don't know where he's gone. Um, Dan was not the regular caller. I think it was Christy Keevil. Um, but I just know the last night, the regular caller had to go away. So Christy was gone and Dan took it on. But he said, does anyone want to call? So I said, I'd like to try it. Uh, you know, if not at F&W, where, where else could you take risks? So I got up and he handed me broken sixpence on a piece of paper. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I called it for six minutes or whatever. And it's the funny thing is that gave me the confidence to go back to Nelson and say, you know, oh yeah, I did some calling this summer. Uh, just... I had to somehow, I had to start it somewhere else. And then um, Nelson's a great place to learn. You've got a built-in lab. Um, I, I started calling there and everyone very willing to give feedback um, and grew from there. Um, the only little detail about Nelson is one of the caller skills you don't get so much is actually teaching because they knew all the dances. <laughs> so I'm doing like Rory O'More and hey, I'm doing a great job. And then I go to another gig and say, let's do Rory O'More. And they're like, teach it. I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's a hard, it's the hard dance to teach. <laughs> so that was, um, yeah, 1980, I started dancing in 1983. I started calling. Amazing. Can you kind of frame the, the Nelson dance a little bit more? It's such a, you know, centerpiece of dancing, especially the New Hampshire contra dance scene. It was yeah. definitely a, like a huge, I have feel like Nelson is a, a clear like point in my mm -hmm. dance constellation mm -hmm. as, as well, you know, and that would have been, I don't know, like mid 2000, 10s 11s you know mm -hmm. so nelson in the 80s what can you fill in a little fill in that picture sure, a sure. little bit well i will 
say um, this last summer I did a speech or a talk, I guess, uh, a talk at something called the Amos Fortune Forum uh, here in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. And it's kind of intellectual stuff. I, you know, like Carl Bernstein was on the schedule this summer and, you know, people you've heard of and people doing educational, you know, intellectual kind of stuff. But they asked me to talk about the history of contradancing relative to the Monadnock region. So I got to do all sorts of research, and it was really interesting. Um, Of course, Nelson was mentioned prominently, and the fact that I would go to the West Coast and say, I dance in Nelson, and people would say, you dance in Nelson? And that's where contradancing survived and, and thrived in the old days. And I got to learn that, sure, there was contradancing in Nelson. There was contradancing a lot of other places. (laughs) <laughs> it really it, a lot of that m- myth as you were was was perpetuated on purpose by characters like Ralph Page and Newt Tolman and people who were playing in the 30s and 40s and somehow it just sprang from there that Nelson was the only place that kept contradancing alive so that was fascinating but uh, by the 80s, this Monday night dance, which actually <clears throat> started, uh, it, it was actually dancing in Harrisville, New Hampshire, when I went. <clears throat> and when that hall was lost, um, it moved to Nelson then. And um, what's great about it, um, anyone can play, anyone can call, Um I think to this day, it's still throw $3 in in a hat by the door. Um, In those days, it was a little famous because the hall was slanted. So no matter where you lined up, you all ended up bunched on one side. And Rich Blase wrote a dance called Dancing Out of the Hole in Nelson, which had a sachet one way and no sachet back. Um, I... My understanding is they've renovated the hall and tried to improve that, but there still might be a little bit of a slant. So it's a, it's, and it's, the series takes pride, rain, shine, snow. It just about never cancels. Um, some of those snowy nights, we had the best damn time because we worked so hard to get here. <laughs> We're going to have a good time. And for some people who call and play there, that's all they aspire to. They just love being there. And yet other people have gotten their start there and had careers playing and calling uh, elsewhere nationally. So it's really, uh, it's been a great place for that. Um, People can take a risk. And again, no one's being paid. So you just say, I want to try. It's a fun scene that's been going for, for... a long time now. My own personal interaction is there was probably a decade of my life I might have missed it once or twice. You know, it was what I did on Monday nights. And and now I'm in a different place and I don't go very often at all. It's just funny how that... It's just nice to know it's still there. Um, so, of course, it stopped for COVID. Um, they picked up again last fall. I think they're back to every, I think they started every other Monday and uh, now I think they're every Monday again with the same 
the same thing. You never know what you'll get. You never know who'll be there, who's calling, who's playing. Um, put your three bucks in at the door and have a good time. <laughs> there you go. What kind, Which musicians would be coming through in Nelson when you started? Well, uh, of course, Bob McQuillan would definitely be there. Um, a staple was Harvey Tolman, who was a wonderful Cape Breton fiddler. And a real character. I mean, Harvey was a great guy and a great fiddler. Um, people, I remember a few times people came and said they came just to hear Harvey Tolman. Um, unfortunately, Harvey isn't really able to play anymore. Um, for me personally, my most personal connection is with Gordon Peary. Um, still comes to play piano and, and um, I met Gordon and then uh, we were in a traveling band together called Fresh Fish. Um, Short-lived, unfortunately. It was but a few really good years with those guys. So, you know, Gordon's been... Uh, well, I met the fiddler for Fresh Fish on the Green Mountain Volunteers uh, trip, and that's where he met Gordon. And just a little funny story is Gordon, because of the nature of our trip, Gordon brought an accordion. Uh, Gordon will be the first to tell you, but I'll be the second, that he's not a very good accordion player. <laughs> but he's an amazing piano player. And and Carrie and Gordon were together for three weeks with Gordon playing accordion. And we got to Vienna, and we had some downtime, and there was a grand piano in a hall, and they sat down, and it was magic. It was like Carrie discovered what Gordon could do on a piano. And uh, that led to the band Fresh Fish. And as I said, we had some really good years traveling and uh, doing stuff together. Um, those are probably the names most people know. Bill Thomas, uh, Piper, flautist. Um, but you, you, okay, you might get a Randy Miller or a Rodney Miller to pop in. That's, that's the whole, uh, you know, box of chocolates thing. You never quite knew what you were going to get. <laughs> I love it. So you're going to Nelson pretty much every Monday. You're teaching third grade, you know, you know, how does it evolve from there? And what's the role of, of calling as you, you know, keep going through life? So I feel really uh, lucky um, as to how that happened. Um, I've taught, uh, a variety of caller workshops, mostly back in the 90s. I love doing them and I haven't been doing them for years, but either weekend things or some week-long ones at uh, like at Augusta Camp in, in West Virginia. And one of the questions is, where do I, where do I practice? Where do I start calling? And some people actually uh, have had to like start a dance series so they could learn to call. <laughs> probably not the recommended method, but they didn't have any other way. And I thought how lucky I am. I have this Nelson laboratory and I felt lucky that I never had to say to anyone, Hey, I'm a good caller. Please hire me. Someone came up to me at Nelson and say, would you like to come do our Christmas dance here in Newmarket, New Hampshire? Well, it was a two hour drive. I think I got $10, <laughs> but 
but someone had told me I was good enough to do their dance, and that was just really exciting. And then it kind of just went from there. Someone saw me at Newmarket and said, hey, would you come to you know, wherever, somewhere in Maine, or would you come? So I appreciate the opportunity to do it and and have it build itself organically. And, and actually, to be honest, I don't know how sure I was there was contradancing anywhere besides New Hampshire. I, I definitely didn't have this big goal of I would like to be a traveling caller and go to, I've lost count, but 40, 40 some odd states at this point. And, you know, I don't think I was as aware, definitely wasn't aware of the national nature of contradancing. Um, like I like to say, it's like a small town that just is spread around the country. Yeah. Um, so I also, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about it as a major part of my life that it would eventually become, but this desire to go to new places, you know, and new communities, it's, it was just as infectious as just going to dances. Um, I mentioned farm and wilderness. I got my so-called start there. Well, next summer, they said, are you coming back? And I was like, oh, I can't. I have dance gigs. And I thought, that's ironic that what Farm and Wilderness helped me get started took me somewhere else. I never yeah. I go back there. Yeah. And then uh, around 1985, um, the band New England Tradition with Bob McQuillan and uh, Pete Colby and April Limber asked me to be their regular caller. And that was a big, around here, that was a pretty big deal um, to, to be their caller. So that allowed me to call some new places. And they brought me down, they brought me down to Boston and said, there's this thing called a Nefa Contra Night where they have multiple callers. Why don't you come with us? We're the band and we'll get you a slot. And that's when I met Larry Jennings. <laughs> Okay, I was curious who your yeah. So yeah. well, so, that's, well you know. so then what happened? I I mean I was, I was curious who were some other callers that were kind of influencing sure. your, your development. You know, up up in Nelson, definitely Mary DeRosier and and a guy called Ken Wilson, who were the two callers that said, "Hey, we want more people to call." They were very helpful. Um, <laughs> You have to know Larry, and I hope some of you do, to appreciate the two things he said to me that night, because they're such Larryisms, <laughs> compliments, but you know, not quite. Um, Bob introduced us. This is Steve. He's been calling with us. He'd like to have a slot, and Larry said, "Well, I usually want to really know the person before they call, but." My new philosophy is if anyone wants to get up and make a fool of themselves, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that set the stage. And then at the end of the night, or at least when I was done calling, he approached me and said, that was better than I thought it would be. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back there, pal. <laughs> God, God bless him. What a, he was great. So um, I did start, you know, coming down to the Thursday series and calling in Boston, and Larry was really something. Um, I wouldn't say 
you know, I'm not sure that he was a mentor in that, you know, we really, he really specifically helped with my calling, but he always had comments and he Mm -hmm. did some things that were really unusual. Like he, he was timing things and he was just paying attention. And he had his idea, you know, his first book is called Zesty Contras. So he had an idea of what is a Zesty Contra? And he, he thought that I, you know, understood what a Zesty Contra was. And I was kind of embodying what he thought dancing should be like. Um, but he would tell, he would, <clears throat> you know, he'd comment like, well, uh, I see you did, you know, it took you 35 seconds to do such and such, or the dance lasted this long. And he actually once came up to me and he said, your average teaching tonight was about 40 seconds longer than usual. Uh, And I'm curious why that was. And I commented on some beginners that were in the room. And he he said, yes, that's what I thought it probably was. You know, that he he was noticing. uh, I noticed something and reacted, and he totally noticed. Who else would have noticed that my teaching was 40 seconds longer than usual? So... We always had great conversations, and uh, I appreciate all of his contributions. Um, he called me out once, you know, at NEFA. He would always lead an interesting session, and he called me out once. I didn't see this coming, but I was, uh, by the time I started dancing, you know how dancing had evolved to where, oh, this idea of being active and inactive it wasn't so much fun when you go to Brattleboro and the lines are 30 couples long. I don't want to be inactive. So I was part of a group of people, not that we were doing it together, but Tom Hines and Gene Hubert and, you know, Tony Parks and myself, we started writing dances and, and, and even Ted Sinella started writing dances that were equal. And eventually we stopped saying active and inactive and said ones and twos because it was more equal stuff. But I had said something to Larry I'd long since forgotten. Ted Snella wrote a dance called the Newlyweds Reel for someone's wedding. And my comment was, how could you write a dance for someone's wedding when you don't even swing your partner? I was like, they just got married. They want to swing. And sure enough, he called me out at a workshop uh, about what makes a good dance. And he pulled that quote, that 10-year-old quote out and said, some people think it can't be a good dance without a partner swing. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, because there are. I mean, I can dig into my old box and see a lot of dances that... um, you know, I'd probably get tar and feathered and run out of town if I called a whole evening program of those dances. But of course, in those days, those were good dances. Yeah. And so you said uh, Larry thought that you understood this zesty contra mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, thing that he was going for. So what what do you think he was seeing in you? Was it your dance choices? Were you writing dances then? Uh, I was just starting to write dances. Um, I think it re- really was the, the the choices, the connectedness of the figures. 
Um, that mostly everyone is moving and there's a lot of good, I think he appreciated a lot of uh, dances with moments where you really connected not only to each other, but to the music. Um, and for me, that often means like when we get into a wavy line and we're all holding on and we're all balancing at the same time. And there's 150 people in the room. I can't see them all, but I know they're all doing what I'm doing. And there's this great feeling. Um, there are there are other dances and there's certainly fine dances and, and, and I will use them and other people use them that are, to me, a little squishier in terms of timing. Like, you know, hey, let's do a hey into a right shoulder round, into a swing. And we may be swinging and, you know, you and your partner, maybe you're not swinging yet. And there's a little bit of looseness in the timing. Um, and that's fine. It, it, it's all fine. But I really like that. Uh, those moments when with a, and uh, as I said, often with a line and a balance where you really know that you're all together. So um, I think those are things he appreciated as well. I know he, we talked about programming and uh, how you get an evening to ebb and flow in energy, in complexity, in the type of figures you do. You know, you don't do the same figure over and over. You, you let one go and come back. <laughs> A few weeks ago, I pulled up. I was really excited. I dug for some dances I hadn't done in a while and, and some new ones. And I didn't look carefully enough. And when I got there and there was my program, I think every single dance had a Lark's Alaman left once and a half. And I was... Uh. I was mortified. I was like, what have I done? I can't use all these dances because they're too, <laughs> it's that figure that keeps coming up. Um, yeah, I'm not, you know, I, I, I wish Larry was here for, for him to answer that question um, fully, more fully than I am. Uh, obviously the music, um, I think he appreciated. I, I told you, I, tried to play music for contra dancing and I did for a little while and I still mess around a little bit but not in public um the truth is if I could play music for contra dancing I probably wouldn't call anymore because I think that's so that's my instrument my instrument that I bring to the band is my calling and I've been gratified when some musicians who I think a lot of have have complimented me on how my voice works with the music and also that I know when to stop calling <laughs> and and give the music the room that it deserves. I mean, step back and say, they're good, uh, go for it. And the music and the dancers do their thing. So... I think he uh, might have also appreciated that aspect that um, I came with good bands and I let the good bands do their thing. And um, while I said I didn't learn a lot of teaching skills at Nelson, um, well, number one, I've been a teacher in life for many years, but um, it's a real separate skill. I mean, at the workshops, we would all, all often talk about 
there's calling and there's teaching. And they really are two separate skills. And if you're really good at teaching, people maybe don't notice. If you're really bad at teaching, uh, they will notice that. Um, so I think, especially when he's out there saying, oh, you're, it took you 45 seconds to teach, you know, he's timing me. I think he appreciated the, um, the skill I could bring to the, the teaching aspect. I can name some mentors for that who didn't know they were mentors, but listen to Tony Park sometime. Every word matters. Every word. It's, it's, I would really listen to how he would teach and think that was perfect. Um, now there's a callers I won't mention that I learned teaching from in a different way. Um, and I don't mean, um, I used to, I used to go to some dances. This is early on when I was just starting to get gigs. I went to a few dances and I intentionally danced with the beginners, especially when there was a pack of them at the end of the farthest set, because that's where they end up. And I listened and I watched and I observed what the dancers were doing to the words from the caller. And I was thinking to myself, when, oh, one, a couple of more words would have made such a difference. You know, circle left three quarters. Well, that doesn't mean anything to a lot of people. Um, I mean, I teach math. I can deal with the fractions, but... Uh, Circle left three quarters until you're back where you started from at the beginning of the walkthrough or until you're across from your partner. Basically, landmarks are a few extra words that are well worth saying because they give people what they need. But the flip side was I was standing there with the beginners and thinking, wow, there was a lot of extra words that didn't help and made us not hear the keywords. So <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot about calling by in my head critiquing teaching that I that I was listening to and and dancing with the beginners and thinking a uh, few more words here that would have really helped some of those extra words you know really distracted us. So uh yeah, I didn't do that a lot. I wasn't spying too much, but um, I know people will often, who lead workshops will often say, if you get permission, tape record callers. And mostly they mean tape record callers you want to be like. Um, but you could also be listening to callers where you're critiquing a little and it's helping you in the process. Yeah. Of what you want to be like.
it's interesting to me that you're a math teacher, but that you you also tune in so much to the the language part of calling, which is mm. especially like you pointed out in the teaching, it's so essential. Uh, are there parts of your math brain that are also activated by by calling and dancing? I I've wondered about that because I hear it said that a lot of callers are math types who are really fascinated with the mathematics of it. I I don't think I've ever really felt that way about it, that, you know, I was intrigued by the geometry of what's going on. Um, But something I find I'm able to do, uh, I know some people, well, now I think some people have programs on their computer where they can say, here's a dance, now, everyone, ladies, chain, let's see where those people are now. And let's do a circle left, see where they are now. In the old days, it was uh, pennies and nickels on the table. And you'd move them around. Um, I have always found, and I was aware of that, and, and I used it on occasion, but mostly I can picture in my head uh, a dance as I'm writing it. And I can just think, Okay, where's everyone at the beginning? All right, here's the first figure. Now where's everyone? And um, then we can do this. Or or I might pick one person. If I really want to be sure a dance works, I'll actually follow each person individually. Where's the number one um, Robin going to be after all these figures? Where's the, you know, Just to make sure it's not accidentally a mixer or, <laughs> <laughs> or different progression than you expect. Um, so I would say maybe um, I have that kind of a spatial mind that can do that. Mm-hmm. Like I really don't usually write stuff out when I write a dance. I just picture it in my head. And uh, so maybe that's a mathy thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. Yeah, I mean, not, not sure. to pigeonhole yeah. that, that a math teacher can't think about words, you know, but it's just, uh, I, I think it's interesting how, you know, other parts of people's lives come into their calling in mm-hmm, different ways. Mm-hmm. And so remind me, so with Fresh Fish, were you also um, their regular caller? We tried to travel together. Um, technically, the band, I was not a member of the band. I was the caller that called the most with them. And uh, we definitely did tours together. Um, but they would work with other callers for sure. And I totally would work with other bands um after fresh fish i did i toured a bit with a band named bob from the princeton area that was, I do, i've never heard of that one. Oh, a band named bob uh no. barbara greenberg bob stein bob pascarello yeah um, that's fantastic we couldn't tour for too long because bob stein and i had a sense of humor's that would drive everyone else crazy. So <laughs> maybe a couple of weeks and then we got to get home because we're stuck in a van with these two. <laughs> <laughs> Just think kind of like the Marx Brothers <laughs> in a van on tour. <laughs> oh my. So it's sort but, of the, the ups and downs of of having that long relationship with the band. <laughs> and, and that and, and that's the perfect word. You test a relationship. The best way to test a relationship is to go on a tour. <laughs> it's or, uh, I shouldn't say test, but to uh, learn about your relationship. 
is to spend that kind of time together. And I enjoyed uh, with Fresh Fish, Carrie Elkin on fiddle, Gordon on piano. And we did have uh, some various uh, people playing the third. Uh, the, the beauty was the two of them could fill a hall with music. And that was the classic line. People would come up, I can't believe it was just two of you. So they they provided all you could ask for, for dancing. Carrie was the most rhythmic, to this day, just about the most driving dance fiddler I can think of. Um, there's other fiddlers, you know, you've got Rodney Miller with the, sw he's kind of swingy. There's totally other fiddlers that I would love to dance to, but Carrie's was as danceable as it gets. And uh, he was voracious about collecting tunes too. Yeah. They were, they were two special musicians, and as I could list you some of the people who played guitar, you'd be surprised. Um, Ann Percival played guitar. Dave Langford had a stint playing guitar. The first one was Tom Hodgson from uh, northern New York. Uh, and then uh, Danny Novak, Sam Bartlett played with them at times. I think my favorite combination was Kerry Gordon, Keith Murphy and Jeremiah McLean. <laughs> that yeah. was a version that only lasted a while. Well, and oh, and David Surrett uh, for a while too. So, so the fish was basically those two, but there were a lot of kind of like what Eloise and company does now. You got sure. your basic two, and then there's this stable of rhythm players that can come in. So, yeah, those were great, great fun days working with great musicians and that is one of the things i would say at collar workshops rule number one stand next to the best band you could find <laughs> and right. a lot of your a lot of your job is taken care of <laughs> absolutely so i mean i'm hearing that you have you know multiple instances of working closely with with one band so fresh fish mm -hmm. or band named bob or old new england and yeah what uh, what did you gain from it, getting to work with the same musicians, you know, mm -hmm. consistently over time versus, you know, a gig here, a gig there? Yeah. Um, well, as I said before, I, I appreciated my chance to play my instrument. Um, so it helped to know the tunes. Yeah. Um, it was really good to know a band's repertoire really well. Um, if you are on tour, you are driving three, four, five hours between gigs. So you might repeat some stuff you did the night before. So you start to get used to some combinations that really work well. So instead of turning to a band and saying, um, this would be good with, uh, something kind of smooth, uh, you know, I could turn to them and say, let's do the tour of Scotland medley. You know, I would do something that I already knew that they played. So I think getting familiar with tunes, you, you know, we say almost any tune can work with almost any dance, and that's true for the most part with contra dancing. Um, but sometimes the flavor of a tune and the flavor of a dance just mesh. And I would write that on the card. Uh, I might say this works really well with a certain tune, um, which you don't necessarily ask... If it's a band you don't work with often, you wouldn't necessarily say, hey, I really want St. Anne's Real. You might say, 
I know this works really well with a tune like St. Anne's Reel. And then if it's in their repertoire, they'll often play it or they'll play something like it. So, um, <laughs> and Kerry was comfortable as a musician giving me advice. Um, you know, I was still somewhat new as a caller in those days. So there was plenty to learn still. And he was not shy about, you know, time to stop calling or <laughs> I once went out. So I would run around the floor sometime. I, I had a wireless mic early, early on. And it helped me, I think, in a lot of ways to to be a better teacher and to be able to help people, like maybe to pick a dance a little bit beyond the ability of the crowd. But because I knew I could go out and help some people who I was keeping my eye on, I might have pushed the dance a little. Like, I'm going to try this because I can get out there. And I do remember on two occasions over the years when I was out on the floor doing my thing and Gary had decided that uh, they'd played long enough. So normally <laughs> if you're out, if you're out on the floor, you get the band's eye contact and you raise the two fingers and you say, okay, two more. And you get this eye contact and you know, they saw you. But as I said, it happened twice that I can remember where the music just stopped. <laughs> and I was as surprised or unaware as anyone on the floor, but we had that kind of trust that it, it was fine. You know, yeah, they were they were doing their thing. Yeah. If I'd been on stage, he would have been, you know, looking at the back of my head with in a way that I would have known he wanted to stop. <laughs> but since I was out of range, he felt comfortable just stopping the tune. So and I, I don't think that's happened with any other musician. So, yeah. And if you you know, if you're enjoying each other, I mean, it starts from the stage. We had a great time. If we're having a great time, um, it helps the dancers have a great time, of course. Um, so you started, you know, you're touring, you're going to, to weekends, you know, what mm. did your, did your relationship to calling and dancing change as you started doing it more, um, as you started adding on travel, you know, it's not just like your neighborhood dance, uh, you're going farther afield. Was that, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, what were those dynamics? Well, it was, it was really exciting. And I, I have to say it, it feels like it just happened organically. I wasn't like, I want to be a traveling caller, right. you know, it just, uh, I'm going to go to, well, <laughs> I guess the, I, I, I was saying earlier, it was nice that people were choosing me as opposed to me saying the, the one exception I'll make is the, first tour we did, I had to say, you know, we would, someone was bringing us to Princeton. So then I called Baltimore and said, well, we're playing Princeton. So could we do your dance? And then I'd call DC. Well, we're going to Baltimore. Could we do your dance? So it was a little bit of selling ourselves based on, and that was a wonderful tour. We did the Northern Belt and then we went down South and did the Winston-Salem, Chapel Hill, Asheville, Knoxville, all those villes down there. Um, that was like a first. Now, I booked the first tour. I did make some mistakes. Too many days off. Um, anything you earn on a tour, if you suddenly have four days off in some other city, 
That's a bad, bad idea. Um, and of course, the fact that in, in contradance touring and even weekends, you don't stay at hotels, you stay at people's houses. So you make great, you meet some people. And if you do it long enough, you see them again, you know, you do it again. And I guess this part is, is really special to me is when my son Sam started touring with his band Polaris. People would, <laughs> people would come up to him, and of course, you know how many Zacon Andersons are there, and they're like, they said, "Oh, I know your dad," and he'd say, "I do too." <laughs> but 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 seriously, he wrote. He was on tour once, and he was gone. It was it included my birthday, and it included Father's Day. But he sent me a. a a note on Father's Day that was so sweet. It just was thanking me for exposing him to this world. And I'm not going to remember the words, but the gist was being who I was when I traveled to make these people happy to see him too. Like that yeah. I wasn't a bad, I wasn't out there being a bad guy. So they were like, wow, I really like your dad. And, and he stayed at some of the same host houses that I had stayed at. So I love that part of it, that it's it, what a nice community it is. And uh, so I think I veered off from the actual question with that story, but. Uh, no, yeah, I, I <clears throat> no, you didn't. I was just wondering, you know, our relationships with, with things mm. change over time. So, you know, I was just sort of contemplating the what develops as this thing that you start to do because you're just drawn into it yeah becomes like really woven into your life which it sounds like it, it you know that story just really illustrates it that it's something that that you passed on in your family yeah and yeah. um and it sounds like it's really part of who who you are as a person mm. at this point. The 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 dance weekend is a is an interesting thing because I didn't know what they were. Again, I started dancing in Nelson and New Hampshire, and you know I didn't know what a dance weekend was. And um, it's interesting, New Hampshire, or well, New England. Uh, I won't go off on this tangent, but I can name you a number of weekends in new Ham in new england that have been attempted right but haven't survived and i think the reason is we have such good music every night at these dances in greenfield in 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 new hampshire in boston that people don't need to go to weekends to hear an amazing band but out on and the a road higher higher frequency of dances i think probably too just more dance series right with more Available. regularity. Yeah. yeah. But out there, you know, elsewhere, there are wonderful dance weekends. And maybe if you're from a band or a caller from New England, they're a little more excited to have you because you're a little bit from the breeding ground of contra dancing. So <laughs> um, uh, the first dance weekend I did was Chesapeake Dance Weekend in, in uh, near DC, well, Maryland, um, Chesapeake Bay. I don't think they do it anymore. And uh, I remember I got hired. I was very excited. I didn't really know what it... Well, I think I'd gone to a Shokin maybe at that point. I'd gone to some camps. But uh, anyway, Friday night, there was a caller meeting. 
and there was this discussion about some stuff, not a caller meeting, but an all-staff meeting. And um, this question came to me, and they said, well, what have you done at other dance weekends? And I said, oh, this is my first one. And they said, why didn't you tell us? And I was like, why do you think? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when they called, I wasn't going to say, I'd love to do your dance weekend. I've never done one before. <laughs> So that was just a funny moment. And uh, yeah, that's another animal. You have to be available to travel a little bit. You know, you start taking plane flights. And at that time in my life, I was, uh, you said how it affects your life. Well, I was in charge of a kitchen at a private school in New Hampshire. And I was able to make a schedule <clears throat> for myself when I hired people I said, oh, yeah, you'll be working this shift that includes Saturdays, and you're working this shift that includes Sundays. And I was able to create uh, a schedule for myself that allowed for the traveling. And there was a few good years. Um, you know how that sort of works when you're first you're new. They think you're pretty good. Then you're kind of the hot caller for a few years and then they've seen you for a while and, and it ebbs and flows and you know the only exception I'll say is like the contra callers were sort of you know ebbing and flowing but Kathy Anderson was always the square caller she had that niche locked up <laughs> so it was often you know me with Kathy Anderson Tom Hines with Kathy Anderson Gene Hubert with Kathy Anderson <laughs> She had quite the niche with the squares, and uh, there were a few of us traveling around. So that, for me, was late 80s, early 90s, into the mid-90s. But um, And then as my life shifted in, in other ways, having a, a family and teaching school, suddenly the calendar shifted. So maybe I couldn't get away for weekends, but maybe I had summers. I could do some, you know, our family did Ogaunt's family camp for CDSS. We uh, directed it for many years because that was that place in our life. We had children. We wanted them exposed to it. So yeah, there's an ebb and flow of that. Honestly, if anyone's listening out there, I'd like to do more weekends again. Give me a call. <laughs> hey, hey. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, it's coming back. I'm, I don't know what to call it. I'm semi-retired. I'm still working, but you know, Got some flexibility, and uh, I've got two things coming up this fall that I'm excited to be back at a dance weekend. Because it's a whole different mindset. you got to dig deep into your program. Y you know all of this, that you just really, it, it inspires and challenges you in a way that a single night of dancing does not. So, um, And you get to spend concentrated time um, with people you enjoy, like... Uh, you know, if you work, if you get together with a band who are all friends of yours and you do a one night, you chat a little bit, but mostly it's business and you move on. But when you have a whole weekend together, you can really connect with some friends. And especially with the way the pandemic put us on hold, um, I look forward to trying to get out there and seeing some of those friends again. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. That's going to take a long time to catch up from from that time mm. lost no kidding no. do you feel that you've 
you know, your, your interest level and engagement with calling and dancing has, is it kind of steady? Do you, has that ebb and flow ebbed and flowed as well? Um, you know, do you, there, there's just a, the fact is it gets repetitious after, mm. you know, if you're doing it that much is that, and I think everybody relates to that differently. So how is it for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's repetitious and yet it's kind of like teaching middle school. Every day was different. Yeah. Even if I was teaching the same lesson, you know, on a given day, there's a different dynamic in the room for one reason or another. Something I brought with me, something the kids brought with them, just, you know, in our attitude. So I definitely said that about teaching, you know, no two days are the same. And, and, and there's sure there's similar things about each each evening of dance and yet uh as you know it's unpredictable who comes uh what they bring what the band brings um i'd say it it's felt fresh in that i still like to do it um i would say the reasons i did less for a long time were more logistical and priorities and um during the pandemic i questioned do how much do i miss it will i still want to do it and you know it's entirely um possible that coming out of that i could have said you know i think i'm done but i started doing well we did a few online that I will say where I drew a line was after a few online events. While some aspects were very cool, the little boxes on the Zoom screen and knowing that yeah. that person's in Australia and that person's in Denmark and that person's in uh, the California, that was very cool. Um, I enjoyed that aspect, but there were other parts of Zoom contradancing that... Um, left me a little unfulfilled yes yeah. <laughs> so I, I I did that for a while and then I decided I would wait till we got back and uh I, I it's certainly a different stage of my life I, like I said jokingly you know I'd like to come to your weekend I'm not looking to travel anything like I was doing back back in yeah. the 90s when I had the time and I had the drive and the youthful energy um I was doing, you know, two or three weekends a month for a while. So nothing like that, but the chance to go off a few times a year and challenge myself, dig into the program, make a good program, you know, learn about a community and, and try to deliver the goods that they're expecting. I, I still feel um, energized by that for sure. Yeah. Nice. Uh, does your comment about... Um... Ted's Ted's newlywed dance still <laughs> hold, you know, how how because I think now we're just even farther away from, you know, dance choreography that would still include actives or inactives, you know, and yeah. those older styles of dances are kind of relegated to you know, novelty sessions uh, mostly is what I, you know, <laughs> I see at at a dance weekend, it's like a chestnut session or, or something like that. 
Um, you know, and I, that's, that's speaking broadly. I think there, there are series around that maybe, um, oh, oh my gosh, Steve, I said, Siri just came on. I said, there are series. Cause you said series. And series <laughs> like, hello, that's so weird. Um, wow. That threw me. That's <laughs> like, so what am I trying to say? Yeah. I, what's what's been your perspective on sort of the changing styles yeah, and choreographies yeah. and and sort of people's tastes for for those those yeah. different kinds of dances no a hundred a hundred percent that's a great uh question great point um it was like i said around the 80s or so when we were starting to say i want to you know pe you know why are people dancing well, you know, in the 30s and 40s in Nelson, maybe it was a community that knew each other really well. They worked together. They raised houses together. You know, they had a barn raising. or And then they danced. And the dancing was a, a, a community that existed enjoying each other. And they could enjoy a Ralph Page dance that had no swing in it or had, you know, just a neighbor's swing or whatever. Um, I feel like as we fast forward, when people could then drive to dances and, you know, suddenly the community was a bunch of people who didn't know each other, who became a community in the dance hall. And they wanted to experience each other in a certain way. And it happened to <laughs> include swinging. Um, so there was that move to get more swinging, both partner and neighbor. Now, as a choreographer, if I give you a balance and swing with your neighbor and a balance and swing with your partner, I've given you half of the choreography of the dance. That's fine. I can be creative with the rest. But I often look at some of my dances that I think this is a really cool dance. There's some neat choreography here. And I realize that it only has a partner swing. And that neat choreography is partly because there's a whole extra phrase to play with. So there's dances I will um, definitely still use because they're just so interesting, but I'll use them cautiously. I can tell you that I once had someone come up and point out, you know, in the middle of calling, someone came up and said, you just did two dances in a row without a neighbor swing. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> you're right, I did. Um, so I'm definitely my dances will have a partner swing um, and most will have a neighbor swing. There is a dance series I call for that in their material for callers, it says our dancers prefer dancing with the two swings in it. If you're, if you're going to do a dance with only a partner swing, please do one in each half and no more. So, you know, they've given some guideline to it. That's, you know, that is what it is. Um, they know what their dancers want. And I don't see any reason to get up on stage and say, I've got this cool stuff. You don't want it, but I want to do it for you. I mean, I obviously want to do what the, the community wants. So it has affected choreography a little bit because of that desire but I will say 
There's a couple of beautiful dances. The f Dance Fiddleheads by Ted Sinella. Oh, yeah. That is like not only a seminal contra dance in the way it used the Petronella balance that everyone just thinks they've been there, that's been there forever. Yep. That is one of the best dances I know. Absolutely. But only the, only the ones swing their partner. So I will pull those out sometimes and just say, you know, this may not match. Uh, maybe I'm not even saying it. I'm thinking it. This may not match what you think a contra dance should be, but this is such a damn good dance that I'd like to do it right now. And, and I've got a great tune to go with it. And, you know. Yeah. But it is, yeah, it is the exception to, to be doing, to be saying proper formation and one's only swing is not very common anymore. Yeah. Uh -oh. Yeah. Am I, am I sounding like Ralph Page? Am I like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Are you? Because <laughs> when I started dancing, we'd come down from New Hampshire, we'd come down to Boston, and they'd be like, here's those New Hampshire dancers, they're barefoot, and they're doing this, and they're doing that, and we were the Black and Decker dancers, because you're going to drill yourselves into the floor with all that twirling. I mean, Never that's, heard that. that's, oh yeah, um, I think Marianne Taylor is the first one to coin the that. Black and Decker dancers. Yeah, because we were twirling. And I saw Ralph Page twice. I danced to him really? twice. He stopped the dance each time. One of them to say, you look damn foolish doing all that twirling. Because we were twirling on ladies' chains. The other time, he stopped the dance and said, I don't want to hear you when you balance. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, balance was a little variation on an English set, you know, how different That's it is something. today. And, I know, yet, I know. How many times do I say a balance is you can hear that the yeah. whole room is together. <laughs> I know. I want to hear it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So I don't, I'm not really becoming Ralph Page, except it's interesting for me to look out and see things on the dance floor that I'm not thrilled with. I, I will honestly say I would never miss it if nobody ever dipped their partner again. It's something that I look out and say, well, we didn't do that in our day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I would never I would never stop a dance. I don't think I have the 
capital that Ralph Page had where you could actually stop a dance and scold dancers. I don't think that would fly. Yeah. And I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how much that was really capital. I, I don't know. Yeah. That's a, it's such an interesting, yeah. I wonder how, how you walk that line between your, your sensibilities and the things that, uh, that are important to you as a caller, as a dancer, and then sort of the choices you make at the mic or in positions of leadership, because, you know, lots of things shape how a a dance is. Um, But the caller is, is a pretty big one. You know, we, we have a big role in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I wonder how you think about that, the kind of navigating those. I, I wonder a little bit though, when you're saying you, when you said leadership, this has popped into my head is seeing Ralph, as a leader, I wonder if we're, if callers of today are seen the same way. I think he was, well, this may not be the same thing, but if you listen to an old recording of the Canterbury, or uh, wasn't Canterbury with Dudley, but uh, an old recording with Ralph Page calling, the music was almost background and the calling was front and center and constant. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, nowadays we have, we are blessed with amazing musicians playing this music and they don't play the same tune the whole time through. They do medleys and they think about key changes and rhythms and they do so much that I do think the role of the caller's voice is different than it used to be. And I wonder if, if along with that, the role of the caller as I'm trying to think of a different word than leader, sort of like the the wise, you know, mover and shaker of things up there that Ralph Page was seen as compared to, uh, there's certainly many, many more callers. You know, in the old days, I think there were fewer and and they might've been seen in a different role than, uh, than we are today. Um, That's really interesting to think about. I've never, I've never thought about that and Mm, and of course you know my my experience of those uh of some of those super influential callers like ralph are are pretty removed you know i I come to the 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 legacy weekend it's also another question for me with callers is how much um how much does sort of personality matter you know because i feel like in some ways we've been describing the caller's role in some way is to is to kind of get out of the way right get out of the way of Mm -hmm. the music Mm -hmm. do teaching in such a smooth way that people just can flow into the dance without you know having to stop and think and and so it is i i think a kind of leadership but but it is, it's hard to put into words, but in some ways yeah. it's like, you might not notice good calling if it's done, if mm-hmm. it's done in that, in this really sort of seamless, graceful way where people, you're just giving them just enough and it's still really needed. I mean, I remember David Millstone was one of the people who I first talked to a lot about calling. And he said something like, 
you know, the dancers have sort of elected you as the caller to, <laughs> to be in charge. I mean, not that they've literally elected you, but there, there's a group agreement that having a caller is, is the quickest way to get to the dancing for this dance, this particular dance form. Yeah, where we're at with yeah. it people don't people don't know it's not like doing this you know the same 12 dances that you would do every every week you know mm -hmm. the caller is bringing this repertoire um but really the point is just to get to the dancing um mm -hmm. so anyway i feel like i've wandered in in a million yeah directions well here, you, but... you you know you brought up um like personality and you know what what should a caller bring what you made me think of well first of all I think what the caller brings is probably different for each person who's there if they're an experienced dancer they're expecting one thing from the caller if they're brand new you know maybe something else I have struggled looking for a word uh for many years over when I do workshops, I'll often start, especially if I have enough time and maybe if it's a week long, I might start with this conversation and then end the week with the same conversation. And I would talk about <clears throat> what does a caller need, need to have to make this work? And the best word I've come up with is presence, but I don't like it that much. There's a, there's a word. But because it's a combination of everything, it comes from being prepared. You know, you've planned ahead. You know your dances well enough. So when you teach them and something goes wrong, you know what went wrong. You're not like, oh, shoot, how did you get there? You're like, oh, you just circled a little too far. Sorry, I should have stopped you sooner or something. You know your dance material. Um, there's something about you when a new person walks in they, they, and this is maybe the personality part or just the confidence part, they get this feeling like they love this stuff. They're going to help me learn it and I'm going to love it too. There's just something, you know, in your, in your approach, in your, you know, you can tell, you can tell when anyone walks in the room that they're a beginner. It's pretty easy. And how you approach them, whether through the mic or, or in a workshop. Um, The confidence that everyone has, for example, when you're teaching a dance and maybe something isn't working, uh, and I'm assuming you as a caller have the similar experience when people start teaching on the floor, it can be really challenging. And it can happen if they don't have confidence in you. And, you know, you really want to have a handle on what's going on and be the one that's going to fix what's going on. You can't have four different conversations happening in different places. So what is all that? That's, that's experience, it's confidence, it's preparation, it's knowing, you know, your material, but it's all packaged and presented with your personality. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I call it a presence. Yeah. I think there's a better word, but now how much of that can you learn? How much of that can you learn in a workshop? Well, a lot of it. Um, Larry Edelman was a huge help to me getting started, um, especially doing some squares, but even just in general, getting started, he talked about juggling balls 
And if you're juggling too many balls, you're not going to be able to do your job. So if you have to read your dance off a card to, to, to really know it at all, you know, better to really know your material. Put that ball down. If you have a really good band that you trust, you can put that ball down. You don't have to be out there saying like, A part, no, 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 faster. No, you know, you get a good band, put that ball down. And so the fewer balls you're juggling, the more attention you can give to the floor. So you get all your, you know, get your balls in order, learn your dances, get good music, you know, and then that personality that you hopefully have can really let you deliver the goods to, to folks. Um, and that, I guess, is the part you don't learn, the personality. I don't know. I mean. Right. Well, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I think that's, for me anyway, uh, I think what I've learned about myself is that I, you know, I do think there are all those those kind of skills that you have to practice and some that just come from from experience, from repetition, from just getting up and teaching another beginner's workshop or, you know, yeah, recovering from another slip up and just sort of having that experience under your belt. But uh, I I just have to be myself. Like anytime that I try to be, you know, put, put on or, or perform something that I'm, mm -hmm. that I'm not, you know, then, then I think that takes me out of presence, you know, yep. or whatever that, yep. you know, that's what takes whatever me that, that actually yeah. hinders my ability mm -hmm. to be successful as, as a caller. And, you know, and for me, that's like, I just don't, when I'm calling, I usually don't have a lot of extra banter or, you know, you mm -hmm. somehow can remember a million jokes <laughs> or you just like have them at the drop of a hat to kind of fill that space. And I sometimes will just not fill space because it will take, cause it will, it will make me more nervous. Cause I'm feeling, mm -hmm. cause I'm, it's mm -hmm. not what comes naturally to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then even that will get me into a more comfortable space where maybe I will just like, a, maybe a, a story from my day will come into my mind and I'll just sort of stream of consciousness share, share it. And I don't know how helpful that is, but to me, it's better than like, oh, I I have to think of something to say right now. Yeah. Well, that's then it's what, not going to go well. Well, yesterday, that's funny you say. Yesterday, one of the sessions I did was an, an advanced session, a challenging session. And that was what I said to the band. I said, the most important thing is that we're, and I actually sent, I don't do this very often. I actually sent them a program ahead. That's pretty unusual for me. And, um, and I said, the goal is that like when I'm ready, whether it's a no walkthrough or I've taught it quickly, you know, that we're ready to start. And I said, the one thing nobody in the room wants is dead time with me holding a microphone. <laughs> so, um, and it worked. They were awesome. They were ready to, ready to play every time. But something, what you just said that made me think about, and I admire this in, in, callers I could name, you know, Will, Mentor, Lisa Greenleaf, George Marshall, or three that come to mind, is the way their approach and their presentation 
makes the whole room feel like they've bought in together for the evening. Uh, you know, it's like we are having this time with friends together. And even if there's 200 people on the floor and they're in a microphone, it sounds like they're just talking to their friends. And that, uh, that buys you a lot of, uh, I could use the word capital again, that buys you a lot of, um, you can screw up a dance and it's funny and it's fun and everyone's, or you can say, um, I, I said this yesterday, one of the things that makes a dance a challenging dance is if the caller has never done it before. And that was immediate <laughs> buy-in that we were going to learn it together. Yeah. And they would help me if I did something that didn't make sense. They said, oh, that there should have been a chain first or, you know, they, they would, we were all in it together. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, not a skill, but a thing that some callers have that, that makes everyone um, feel part of something they're doing together for the evening. Yeah. It's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it strikes me as just very respectful, like a lot of mutual respect there, both uh, of the caller saying, you're, you're in it with me. Um, mm -hmm. And then vice versa, that that sort of invites the, the, the dancers to have some, some respect and, and sort of feel seen by the, by the caller. And, you know, it takes me back to what David Millstone told me. And then, you know, we as callers shouldn't shouldn't take that for granted that that this room full of dancers has sort of, you know, quote unquote, elected us as as the mm. the person like to that. guide them through this yeah. evening. It's like, no, we we actually that's quite a quite an honor, and it's yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it it is a very magical thing. Um, yeah, that's not. You know, yeah, I certainly don't take it lightly, and I think I think most callers don't actually. And it would have been interesting to be able to ask Ralph Ralph Page, you know, what was going through his mind when he, you know, I, I there's a, you hear that story about him coming down to kind of sternly, yeah. <laughs> you know, reprimand people. I'm sure that didn't feel great. I'm sure that didn't feel respectful in a lot of ways um but i also can can imagine that he you know there was something that he cared about mm -hmm. you know in, in that interaction yeah. too that he cared cared about the dance in some yeah. way um i i love what you're sharing that david said and i 100% agree. They voted with their feet. They voted by coming to your dance. That they wanted, you know, to be at a Mary Wesley dance. They <laughs> voted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, another uh, piece of the puzzle that we're talking about, uh, what, it, what a caller brings um, that I hadn't really mentioned, of course, is programming an evening. Yeah. Um, and I warn people because I learned the hard way that, that they're not there to see what you got. You know, you got to understand whatever gig you do, whether it's a, a wedding or a church dance or a kid's dance or, a, you know, an experienced contra, 
You want to understand why they're there, what their goals are. And that's both the organizer's goals as well as the, the dancer's goals. Um, when you when you program, and I, I remember early on, it's like I got these great dances that I collected on tour. Can't wait to bring them back. And I walked into the dance ready to go, and the makeup of the crowd was completely, you know, different than I was expecting, and it wasn't appropriate. And there was that push-pull of like, oh, they're going to love these dances. I really want them to do them but they're not appropriate. So I got to put them away and save them for a different night. Um, I mean, the simple thing that I would tell people is my goal is that people in the room feel challenged, but successful. Yeah. And, you know, where that line is could be extremely different. You know, the wedding with drunk adults <laughs> compared to the challenging dance and everything in between. Uh, you need to find that place where they do feel like they did something special. They you know, you feel like there was a challenge, but they succeeded. So yeah. um, programming is is another big part of it for sure. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's, it's not a as lot. easy as people think. Oh, I know. <laughs> uh, I, I like to do callers. Like when they say, "Would you do a callers workshop?" We have like an hour, hour and a quarter. I always call it a caller discussion and I say it's open to all levels. And, um, and if there are experienced callers in the room, I let them talk as much as I do. Um, but I really like it when people come who really don't want to be a caller, they're just curious. Yeah. And, and they'll sometimes come up afterwards and say, wow, I had no idea how much was going on how much thinking and planning and was going on by the caller in at our local dance. They're not just getting up and calling. There's a lot yeah. more to it. So yeah, I like when people get that appreciation of what goes into it. Yeah. Kind of see how this sausage is made. I think that's the another thing. Is made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't think we want to see how the sausage is made. <laughs> just an expression Steve. it's a good expression I, I i like that one that's a good one have you never heard that i don't think so oh, i thought that was like a a thing a thing you say to describe exactly like oh <laughs> well i grew up looking in a under the hood or what oh yeah. okay there we I go grew up in a kosher house we didn't eat sausage you didn't <laughs> there you go perfect <laughs> um ah oh. Well, should I do my closing questions? Seems this like we're been, there. This has yeah. been so fun. It's been um, great. So things I've been asking everyone in these interviews first is, do you have any pre or post dance rituals or pre or post gig rituals? So hmm. things that you do to kind of get ready to, to get on stage and call and call and things that you do to wind down afterwards. Mm -hmm. Pre-dance is usually driving really fast, so I'm not late. <laughs> I've only been late for two contra dances in 40 years, and only one of them was my fault. <laughs> the other, I was in the organizer's car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I remember the first year or two of calling. I got really nervous before I'd start. There was something, especially when it was a new dance, like now I'm doing a dawn dance. Now I'm doing, you know, I'm in Boston or whatever the milestone was I was feeling. I remember being very nervous and it was really hard to start. But once I started talking, then there was kind of no turning back. <laughs> so I remember that. I don't feel it anymore. Um, I think the only routine that is really important is you connect with the band and, and, and make sure things that you, you don't want to run into something later and think, I wish I had said that to them earlier. So you, yeah. you lay out some stuff, um, drink some water, you know, have your water handy. Um, afterwards, I don't have a lot. I try, since I do sound myself. Um, I try to be a performer who helps break down the sound. Yeah. Um, wind those wires and, you know, carry a few things because I appreciate it when it's it's done at the other end. And I know that, you know, musicians are often visiting the people they've wanted to talk to and whatever. But yeah, post-dance post is usually um, help clean up and hit the road. Um, if it's general rule if it's under two and a half hours I'll try to drive home yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like to be home yeah <laughs> nice nice and then so I'm curious about the ways that different callers organize their collections of dance material and how mm -hmm. they notate them um so are you or do you use cards do you have printouts are you have you gone full digital what's your what's your dance notation uh, approach yeah i would guess i was one of the last to, to stop being all cards um <laughs> we won't talk about adina's system oh yeah hers is not far it's, from mine so really <laughs> oh yeah pretty, i'm still all cards. fascinating <laughs> yeah um i i posted a picture on facebook once of just the stage and someone's feet and it was like, guess the caller. <laughs> um, I used cards a lot. And someone impressed upon me, what if you lost your cards? It's like, oh, my goodness. Wow. So I had a lot of time on my hands one around 2009, I think it was. Um, unfortunately, I fell and I ruptured my quadricep tendon and I was had surgery and I was laid up for quite a while. And I got kind of into the, okay, I'm putting them on a computer. So now they are all on, um, in, in digital form. I still have my cards, but I'm not sure where they are. <laughs> so it's pretty much, um, but I don't like, uh, I don't really like looking at the computer when I'm teaching and calling. So mm -hmm. if I'm planning ahead, I'll, I'll look at the computer and I will, these days anyway, since coming back from the pandemic, I will choose a program plus, like, I hope this is my program, but here's an extra 10 dances. Yeah. And, um, and I'll print them. So nice. I will have printed material at the dance. And also, uh, it's a lot nicer uh, when the fiddler says, can I see the card? And you don't want to hand them a laptop. 
Yes. <laughs> so I can hand him a piece of paper. And then um, it doesn't mean those are the only dances I can do. If I think, boy, you know, beneficial tradition would be great right now. I can find it on the computer pretty quickly. Yeah. So uh, I did kind of go digital. Um, yeah. Can I tell you a quick story? Please. Because I've been behind all the curves in terms of technology. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, my dad in the mid-70s said, you should go into computers. It's the next field. Just like the the movie where the guy goes, plastics. Yes. So um, uh, my dad was right. You know, I'm a mathy kind of guy. And computers, imagine getting into computers in the 70s. So he was right. But I ran the other way. I did completely different things. Um, Lisa Greenleaf was booking for the, when, the Thursday night series back in the maybe the mid-90s. And she used to send a letter. Here's the, here are the dates. Here are the ones that are taken. Fill in the one you want and send, it, send me the letter back. And then one day she got in touch with me and said, I never heard back from you about the next cycle. I said, well, I didn't, don't remember seeing a letter. She goes, oh, I don't do letters anymore. I do email. And I said, oh, I don't have email. And she said, well, I do have a list. I do have a list of people who I'm still sending letters to if you want to be on the list. Now, I'm not sure people will know these names, but she said it would, I said, well, who's on the list? She goes, well, it would be you, Bob McQuillan, and Alan Block. <laughs> I don't know if you know Alan Block. I know you know Bob. But am, am I guessing that they were in some... Yeah, I mean, are, Bob would talking, have been a totally different generation. Yeah, we are talking much older, you know, <laughs> a list that I had to say, okay, <laughs> I'll get an email and you can write to me that way. That was... Uh, that was a pretty funny moment. I have to say I'm like strangely relieved to hear a story of you missing an email <laughs> just given <laughs> given our history Touché. which is which is literally walking into into the Ralph Page dance legacy weekend Steve is on stage Adina and I both walking in and Steve saying from the mic you guys owe me an email <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> anyway that's great um, okay, my last question, which is my little sociology experiment. Um, if you know, do you identify as an introvert or an extrovert? Oh, interesting. Can I say both? Yes. I, I mean, clearly I'm comfortable in front of people. I've been a teacher for years, uh, a caller for years. Uh, people say, you know, when you do a survey, what do you fear the most? And number one is speaking in front of a crowd. You know, death is like number four. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that makes me want to say I'm an extrovert. But I feel like I'm shy also. Mm -hmm. Like uh, like in a smaller setting. I, I mean, I'm, I do okay when I get to start talking to people, but... People I don't know, I do feel I'm kind of shy. So um, I'd give it a both. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just curious how people think about that that aspect of themselves 
as people who stand up on stage at a mm. microphone and and you know tell people what to do <laughs> but and it it really runs the gamut you know i think one doesn't necessarily predict predict to the other but right it's, yeah. it's interesting well, callers, to hear about would you say callers come in all shapes and sizes absolutely yeah yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And different reasons for why they call, I suppose. Everyone's got their own reason. Yeah. So you can't pigeonhole us. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what this whole project is about, is to hear from mm. hear from as many different people who call as, as possible. So and I'm just scratching the surface, but I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you getting to getting to know you a little bit more. We did not cover, you know, nearly enough, you know, but it has been really great to to yeah. chat a little bit, Steve, and catch up. And um, I'm, I'm glad that we e emailed successfully, both of us. And <laughs> and uh, I'm excited to come down and call your dance this fall. Yeah, looking forward to it. Grateful for this conversation. Thanks for, yeah. for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. This was really delightful. As I said at the beginning, callers do like to talk about calling. Do we ever. <laughs> Thank you so much to Steve for talking with me. Check out the show notes at podcasts.cdss.org to learn more. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit podcasts.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing! The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.